All right. Thanks, Kyle, for leading us in prayer and reading of the text. Um, last week, Pastor Paul uh, preached from chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, which is obviously the story of uh, David and Bathsheba. And uh, he said at that time that chapters 11 and 12 were really one extended account um, of this single story and that they both serve together to illustrate uh, what we sometimes call the good news and the bad news of the gospel. And Pastor Paul defined them this way last week. He said the bad news of the gospel is that you and I are more sinful and more prone to evil than we are willing to admit that we are desperately in need of a savior. Uh, but the good news of the gospel is that at the very same time as that is true, we are also more loved, more cherished, more delighted in, and more cared for than we ever dared to hope. And that in Jesus Christ, the Savior we need is the Savior we have. Um, and this reality is something that we call grace. Uh, grace is an undeserved, unearned gift of love. Uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica actually defines it very well, uh, grace in Christian theology. It says this, the spontaneous unmerited gift of divine favor towards sinners. And because we, like David, we really are no different. We despise the word of the Lord, and so we also need grace. And we're going to see in our text today how the grace of God functions in our lives. We're going to see uh, four things about it. We're going to see how grace confronts, how grace reveals, how grace leads, and how grace restores. And so we begin with grace confronting. All right, last week again, Pastor Paul mentioned that uh, David, in all of his scheming in chapter 11, uh, God is never mentioned until the very last verse of the, the, the chapter. Um, David was living as though there was no God. And more accurately, actually, he was living as though he were God, sending and beckoning people to and fro like pieces on a chessboard. But now, God reasserts himself into David's reality. So as our text opens, it opens with the words, and the Lord sent. So chapter 11 was filled with David sending, David sent and calling, and now the Lord sends at the opening of this chapter. And the Lord sent, you see that David would have remained in his foolish, sinful stupor for as long as God allowed him to. But in his mercy, the Lord initiates the process of waking him up. Uh, if he were to wait on David to make a move toward him of his own volition, he would wait an eternity. And so instead, he makes a move towards David. And the same can be said of us. And so one of the things that we really want to see here is that it is the mercy of God to confront us in our sin. And this is what makes grace so amazing. Not only is it undeserved and unmerited, but it falls in our laps before we even realize we need it to reach for it. And in this case, in the case of our text today, 
God uses Nathan as his instrument. Right? Nathan is empowered by the Holy Spirit and equipped with the word of God. And he's both bold and skillful in his approach to David. He needed to be bold because remember that David is the king. And also, very recently, he had a loyal companion murdered to cover up his sin. So Nathan couldn't have been sure how David is going to respond to being confronted here in his current state. But Nathan takes his responsibility seriously. And so he sucks up his nerves and he goes to see David. So he's bold, but he's also skillful. Instead of kicking open the doors to David's chambers, uh, wagging his finger and shouting, murderer, adulterer, I know what you've done, confess. Instead, he goes into David and pretends that he wants David to weigh in on a judicial case, uh, perhaps a conflict that he's been trying to mediate. Um, and maybe Nathan came to him with this sort of thing more often. Maybe this was, this was kind of normal for them. And so it wasn't alarming to David at all. He wasn't suspecting anything. Um, but either way, he, he appeals to David's overinflated sense of pride and moral superiority rather than triggering them in a defensive response. Uh, Joyce Baldwin, a theologian, wrote on this passage that Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David even knew he had a sword. So Nathan is skillful, right? He's not trying to be sneaky. He's being wise. Um, and as Christians, we ought to desire to grow in this kind of wisdom that he displays here. Proverbs 20, verse 5 is one of, one of my favorite Proverbs. And it says, The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters. You see, anyone can see what a person does, but it takes a wise person, a discerning person, to draw out why they do what they do. And ultimately, this is what matters more, right? Uh, the things that we do, the end actions, are merely the symptoms or the natural fruit of what we actually believe in a given moment. And as Pastor Paul pointed out last week, David believed he was God for a time and could manipulate the world in order to gratify his own desires. And the result of that belief was murder, adultery, and lies. So what if we were to grow in the skill of identifying the roots of sin and helping one another to fight it off at that level? We would be much better off for it. And that's what Nathan does for David here. Nathan devises a sort of loving trap for David. And David, who has been actively trying to silence his conscience for a long time now, uh, the timeline's a little blurry, but uh, it's possible that there, as much time as two years has passed since the, the killing of Uriah. Um, so he's been trying to silence his conscience for quite some time now, and he's become so numb to his own sin, that he just walks right into Nathan's trap without thinking anything of it. Which brings us to our second point, which is that grace reveals. So Nathan presents this simple case to David of a rich man and a poor man who live in the same town. The rich man has 
uh, loads of resources and livestock of his own. The poor man has invested all he has in a single lamb. And he loves this lamb. It's like his own child. It eats from his table, it drinks from his cup, and it sleeps in his arms. Now a visitor comes to the rich man. And the rich man doesn't feel like putting himself out or uh, hosting his guest at any expense to himself. And so he goes and steals his poor neighbor's lamb and sacrifices it to feed his guest. And our text says that David's anger was greatly kindled against this man upon hearing this story. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Isn't that interesting? As the Lord lives, this from the, man, from the mouth of a man who has desperately been trying to forget that the Lord does indeed live, or at least that he cares deeply about injustice. He says, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. Why the pronouncement of capital punishment? Right? It wasn't, this wasn't a case of murder. Wasn't a case of adultery, after all. Um, both of those offenses, which carried the penalty of death in Old Testament civil law. Uh, but this was just a stolen lamb. Now, Exodus 22 uh, enlightens us on the second part here, because in Exodus 22, we see that if a man steals a sheep, he has to repay it fourfold. So he has to give four sheep back. So the second part of David's pronouncement is correct um, because he says that he must repay it fourfold. But David overreacts because he says the man also must die. So why the overreaction? Um, a number of scholars suggest that uh, this was the involuntary response of a guilty conscience. Uh, reflecting on these events later in his life, David uh, wrote in Psalm 32 of this time period that while he remained silent, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon him. He felt the weight of God's displeasure and he was trying to ignore it. And so his sense of justice has been suppressed for so long that when it springs back into action, it swings a little beyond its target and it exposes David himself. He just handed down the penalty due to him for his own crimes. David's conscience had been screaming at him night and day, reminding him that he deserves death. And he has been desperately trying to stuff it down, but now it finally comes spilling out. And it's all the acknowledgement that Nathan needs. Because we see in verse 7 that Nathan immediately says to David, you are the man. And with those four words, David is pierced to the heart. His conscience is mortally wounded, and he can numb himself to it no more. The scales fall from his eyes, and he sees clearly again for the first time in a long time. And the horror of what he has done finally begins to seep in. It must have been a terrible feeling 
This is actually the effect of grace taking hold in David's life. David's sin is being revealed. He's being exposed like Adam and Eve in the garden. He's nowhere to hide. Grace reveals. Eugene Peterson writes this. In the Christian life, our primary task isn't to avoid sin, which is impossible for us, but to learn to recognize it. The fact is that we are sinners and there is an enormous amount of self-deception in sin. In other words, our job, our job as Christians, is to grow in sensitivity toward and ability to recognize sin in ourselves at increasingly deeper levels. But because of the self-deception that accompanies sin, we need each other in order to accomplish this. Hebrews 3 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So as Christians, we need to both learn uh, to be Nathans for one another, uh, to be Nathans for others, and to receive the help of Nathans in our own lives, right? We need to be uh, both bold enough and skillful enough to confront others, speaking the truth in disarming ways for the purpose of building up and strengthening the body of Christ, and we need to be humble and open enough to receive potentially hard words without defaulting to self-defense, self-justification, or blame-shifting. We need to be willing to listen and to actually consider the concerns of our brothers and sisters in Christ because they just might be able to see something that we are blind to in ourselves. But this is hard. Being vulnerable is uncomfortable and scary at the best of times. So why would we put ourselves through all this? Well, uh, because this isn't the end, but rather a means to an end. Certainly, if vulnerability for vulnerability's sake was the goal, it would be an unworthy goal. But remember that all of this is in service to grace. It is a means of grace, and this brings us to our third point, which is that grace leads somewhere. Right? Grace is always headed somewhere. It doesn't confront and expose us just to leave us wallowing in our shame and our self-loathing. The aim is not to tear down. Grace is always constructive, always restorative, always aimed at bringing sinners to true repentance and full restoration. Even when it involves painful consequences, as it certainly does in David's case, as we're going to see momentarily. And it's in this restorative spirit that Nathan pivots now to delivering a message from the Lord, uh, or to delivering a message, a personal message from the Lord to David. Um, and remember, David didn't have the Bible the way we have it. He didn't have the, the complete scriptures. Um, and so he receives the word of the Lord from Nathan. We receive the word of the Lord from his scriptures today. 
Um, but here, so Nathan says to David, he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, this is direct speech from the Lord, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? You can hear the pain and disappointment in God's words to David. He's like a disappointed father. And it crushes David. The word of the Lord reminds him how richly God has blessed him. And he's confronted with the reality that he has trampled all over God's goodness and provision to take for himself the one thing he wanted that God hadn't freely given him already. Only the Spirit and the Word of God can bring us to this place of clarity and brutal self-awareness. But David is also reminded, tragically, that despite the forgiveness of God, there are consequences to our actions that cannot be escaped. And even more so for a king of Israel. Uh, Alec Motier wrote this, commentating or commenting rather on this passage. He wrote, repentance is like fetching back a stone one has just thrown into a pool. The stone can be retrieved, but the ripples go on spreading. God mercifully accepted David's repentance, but as we'll see in the remainder of his life, the Lord did not choose to stop the ripples. And so we see in verse 9b, the Lord pronouncing the consequences, the tragic consequences of David's actions. He says, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So first, because he had had Uriah killed by the sword. Now the sword will never depart from his own home. And we're going to see before the curtains close on David's story, he's going to lose four sons. And there will be constant competition and jealousy and infighting and betrayal and rivalry in his home until the day he dies. No peace, constant heartache. And the Lord continues in verse 11, he says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So secondly, because you took your neighbor's wife, I am going to allow a neighbor or someone close to you, to have your wives. And because you tried to keep what you did a secret and spare your reputation, this thing is going to happen out in the open where everyone can see it, and you will be publicly shamed. And not to give too much away about what's coming, but Absalom fulfills this prophecy entirely. And God's words understandably leave David afraid, 
terrified that he's going to suffer the same fate as Saul did. Because remember, when Samuel went to Saul originally, after Saul had proven himself to be an unworthy king, he said, the Lord has decided to take your crown from you and he's going to give it to your neighbor. And that neighbor was David. And so here, God is announcing the consequences of David's actions using very similar languages. So David is afraid that he too is going to lose his throne. And why wouldn't he? By human standards and laws, David has failed in greater and more public ways than Saul ever did. He should be afraid. Now, I want to include my comments on verse 14 here, even though it's the last verse of our text. Um, but let me explain. Our text ends in verse 14 uh, with the death of a child. It ends like this. It's nevertheless, because of this deed you have utterly, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. All right. As a literary structure, this is sometimes called an inclusio. Um, and what that means is you have an idea that bookends another idea. And it's structured that way in such a way to remind us that the second point does not negate the first. And so our text has consequences repentance and restoration, and then ends with a reminder of these tragic consequences. Um, our text ends with this somber reminder that the serious consequences remain despite David being forgiven. And I think that's what the author is trying to communicate by way of literary structure. But secondly, because of that, verse 14 can't be interpreted independently from verses 10 to 12. It's not meant to be taken alone. And so remember, um, I said earlier that uh, our sinful actions always have consequences, but especially if you're the king of Israel, right? This is a difficult, uh, it's a difficult verse to translate. It needs a little bit of massaging to get it right in English. But what is being communicated is essentially this. Because David is the king of Israel, he's the public facing sort of figurehead of Israel. Um, he's a representative of God's people to all the nations. He has put God in an impossible situation. Because Israel was always meant to be an example to the nations of how much better life was within the parameters of God's law, uh, acknowledging his holiness and his justice. And now David, the most high-profile Israelite, has violated God's laws in you know, ten times over. And everybody knows it, and so they are watching. If God allows David to go unpunished, it would give the other nations occasion to blaspheme him because he's showing himself to be unconcerned with his own holiness and justice. And so ultimately, God is saying to David that you have put me in a position where I have no choice but to discipline you in very painful and public ways. And lastly, as I mentioned earlier, David loses four sons, 
right? But it's this, it's this son, it's, in verse 14, it's the son that we, this is the one that we tend to struggle with the most. And of course, that's because he's an infant, right? And we tend to think of infants as innocent. And we think, how, how could this poor child have gotten caught up in this? Why does this child have to die for something that he had nothing to do with? And it's true. That is a tough thing to wrestle with. The other three brothers, they all did terrible things. They made their choices. And quite frankly, it's hard to feel bad for any of them when they meet their demise. But we have to remember that all of David's son's deaths were the consequences of the same sin. This child wasn't uniquely targeted or dealt with any differently than David's other children. However, I do think that verse 14 ends this way, that our text closes this way, to be a literary gut punch. I think the author knows that it's going to have a unique impact, and it snaps us back to the seriousness of sin so that we don't take the costliness of grace for granted. It doesn't make it any easier to swallow, but... All right. All of this leads, as we said, grace leads, it's going somewhere. All of this leads David to this moment in verse 13, where he finally crumples to the floor and says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's a very simple statement. Some people would think it's inadequate. But this is what true repentance looks like. There's no blame shifting. There's no self-justifying. There's no hiding. David simply owns his sin. And he acknowledges that to despise the word of the Lord is the same thing as to despise the Lord himself. This is why he phrases his confession the way he does. Of course it includes the fact that he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and Joab and his own family and the people of Israel. All of that falls under the umbrella of sinning against the Lord because we can't transgress the command to love our neighbor as ourselves without first transgressing the command that it's contingent upon. By the time we have failed to love our neighbor, we have long ago failed to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. Because remember, our actions are the natural fruit of our beliefs. All right. So this brings us to our fourth point. Grace restores. Here we are. David has been stripped bare. He stands before the Lord utterly exposed and at his mercy. And remember that by all accounts, David deserved death twice over. First for the sin of murder and secondly for the sin of adultery. But because his repentance is legitimate, the Lord forgives him immediately and without hesitation. In the very same verse... David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. This is, this is amazing grace. This isn't merely a pardon where all involved will always know that the one who sinned got away with it without having to pay for it. It's not a begrudging pass being granted. No, Nathan says, the Lord also has put away your sin. It's as though it ceases to exist from this point forth. 
Psalm 103 uh, says this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. As far as David's relationship with the Lord is concerned, it's as though none of this has ever happened. It would not be held over his head or revisited in some later argument as a trump card. It is finished. It is paid for. You don't need to die, and we don't need to speak of this anymore. And he does the same for us. When the word of God has exposed us before the Lord, and we turn to him in true repentance, he says the same words to us. He says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. How is this even possible? Because the beloved little lamb of God with whom he was well pleased was sacrificed for David and for us. Jesus Christ laid down his life to make a once and for all time atonement for the sins of the world. And so we can enjoy a fully restored relationship with God. Grace restores. We'll finish with these words from before the throne of God above. It says, because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray. Merciful and compassionate Father. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, we thank you for your word. More precious than the finest gold. Sweeter than the purest honey. Equip us, Holy Spirit, to live by it. And to learn how to help and encourage one another to live by it as well. Make us sensitive to our sin. Make us quick to repent. In the name of the precious Lamb who was slain, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Um, I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up. And as they are coming up... Um, if there are any questions, you are free to ask them at this time. That means you can either raise a hand and ask them in here, or you can text them to me on my phone.
all right. <laughs> I got one te- I question texted in. It says this. When we look at the one punishment that David receives, particularly his wives uh, publicly made adulterous, why is it that God uses more sin as a punishment? Does that seem contradictory to who God is? Wow. There are a lot of things about God that I don't know or understand. But one thing I'll say is this. God, um, the way we understand God's sovereignty is that he orchestrates all things. However, the way things are brought about are often, or are, through the sinful volition of human beings. They are, they're the instruments of um, delivering the things that God allows to pass. And sometimes God allows terrible things to pass that are very much against his, his own moral uh, standard in order to accomplish things that couldn't be accomplished otherwise. Um, yeah, I think <laughs> that, and I mean, this question can exp- apply so far um, to, to all the terrible things that God allows to happen in the world, right? We, we trust that he's sovereign. We trust that the things that he's allowing, as terrible as they are, um, in the grand view, in God's view, they are leading to something better. Um, and that he's accomplishing his plans and his purposes somehow through them. Again, that in the moment doesn't give us a ton of comfort. Other than that his promises are that he's, whatever we're going through, he will be with us. And he'll never forsake us or abandon us. Which is the promise that he fulfilled to David. That despite all of this, David was fully restored to him. His promises to David, his covenant to David remained. But he had to bear these terrible consequences. So, more more of a common, I guess, right than a than a question. But the, that, as we look at this story, we see, uh, you know, David does does this awful thing, and then the Lord gives him these consequences that are terrible, um, and yet God is trying to teach David to to 
shape him through these things, right? He's trying to make David into the man that he needs him to be through them, right? And I, and I think you're right. And I think you, you, in this, when you were reiterating there, you mentioned the people, and I think you're right. David is, David is representative, remember. Um, so to the onlooking world, uh, he's being made an example. Um, evil begets evil. Uh, when you despise the word of the Lord, nothing but evil can come from it. That's the example that David is now forced to be to the world. Um, and again, the rest of his life is plagued with horrible things. Um, and, and so he, he is the example. Right, yeah, okay, so the, the comment is that David is made to feel the pain that he inflicted on others. Um, and I think there's a sense in which that's true, especially if we look at the Old Testament civil laws, right? It's, it's a lot of, um, you know, the, the cost for murder is that you get murdered, right? Like it's, there, there's this, um, uh, the, the, the system of justice at the time was such that um, there had to be an, the, the, the punishment had to fit the crime, right? Mm. Mm. Sure. Um, I'm getting a lot of text messages here. <laughs> I Honestly, I spent three days reading on, like, consequences of sin and particularly about this baby because, obviously, we anticipated that. <laughs> This was coming, but not, I, I was hoping that I would find an answer. It'd be like, this explains it all, wraps it up in a bow. There you go. And it's just, it's not the case. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to address one more and then I'll, I'll respond to any other ones that I have here. I'll personally. But, um, okay, so here's one question. Is you talked about growing in the skill of identifying the roots of sin. Do you have any, uh, do you have advice on how to grow in this way? Um, so one thing that we're doing right now is um, I'm, I'm doing some training with some of the leadership here uh, on uh, sort of adapting some material from, from uh, Paul Tripp and... Uh, Tim Lane's material, How People Change. And it's all about this. It's basically about um, learning to identify how real change happens in people and what, what motivates our behaviors and how if you want to change behaviors, you have to understand motivations behind behaviors. And, um, and I think as uh, we've talked about doing these teaching modules, I think that in the coming semesters, in near coming semesters, 
we'll probably make that program available to everyone uh, because it's an incredibly, it's just an incredibly helpful, helpful information. So um, that course would be a place where you could learn uh, and grow in the skill of identifying these things and learning how to address them. Um, it would be, I think, very helpful to you. So that will be forthcoming. But uh, like I said, I'll get, I'll respond to the rest of these uh, privately. But thank you for your questions. <laughs>